You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. For more audio and video, please subscribe to the Culture and Anarchy podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And make sure to check out our YouTube channel. Follow me by my Twitter handle, at anarchy underscore culture. And please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com. If you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list, you'll receive access to free ebooks, including the text with scholarly references to our recent eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, a critique of new atheism, secular statism. And keep an eye out for our upcoming poetry newsletter, The Dial, which serves a libertarian, anarchist, and modern transcendentalist intellectual. We are now accepting poetry submissions and short critical and literary essays. Please see our website at www.culture-anarchy.com for more information. The Culture and Anarchy podcast presents The Spirit of Market Anarchy A Critique of New Atheism, Secular Statism by Morgan A. Brown Part 4 Pick Your Poison Religion or the State? A more libertarian-leaning Steven Pinker trenchantly critiqued Christopher Hitchens' claim that it is religion that has poisoned everything throughout history. Religion plays no single role in the history of violence because religion has not been a single force in the history of anything. The vast set of movements we call religions have little in common but their distinctness from the secular institutions that are recent appearances on the human stage. And the beliefs and practices of religions, despite their claims to divine provenance, are strongly influenced by human affairs, responding to its intellectual and social currents. Since religion has indeed not played a single role in the history of violence, precisely because its marriage to the state is often the hallmark of its malevolence, while its divorce from the state monopoly marks its pacification, it cannot be said that religion was ever the problem in and of itself. There are undercurrents in Islam, particularly its conception of the divinely appointed state, the caliphate, that defy this trend, largely because radicalization is spontaneous and individual, and not institutionally driven per se. But even then, the Islamo-fascist ultra-conservatives are a small minority in the West. These radicals profess a spiritual state, a fascist state of Islam with invisible laws that bind all of humankind, whether or not the individuals to be ruled personally contract to bind themselves by the terms of the bargain and mark their transition out of the market as soon as they violate person and property in order to stake out the imaginary utopia's foundation in blood. The violence shocks, primarily because it is a statist agenda without an actual state to bind it yet. It is a war without a pre-existing stock of generals and soldiers, and even without a predefined enemy. Radical Islamic jihadis disgust us, because every law-abiding citizen of a country is committing treason against the imaginary state of the caliphate if she is not committing murder and coercion in its name. The American state, in the meantime, continues its existence by expropriation through a collective bargaining contract that pays no heed to individual agreement to its terms. Disestablished churches continue by voluntary payment and do not propose a rival state apparatus. They already have access directly to the state apparatus 
Religious participants in secular democracies push for the welfare warfare state in order to prosecute what are at base traditionally religious hang-ups regarding man's social obligations. The separation of church and state, which is a principle that most consider the key secular and governmental hinge upon which religion's pacification relies, is in its formulation a pure libertarian standard of property rights protection and is thus diametrically opposed to progressive democratic socialism and the welfare warfare state. The state cannot despoil religious institutions through expropriation, that is, taxation. And churches cannot despoil the general public and rival denominations by co-opting the military might of the state to prosecute thought crime or to collect tithes by law. Direct expropriation on religious grounds is, in theory, strictly prohibited in America through Congress, even if state expropriation for religious grounds is permitted, as long as politicians do not formulate their religious opinions in words while utilizing the political means in order to achieve their unspoken religious goals. The executive branch, we have already seen, is not bound by any law preventing the establishment and hampering of the free exercise, namely the free market, of religion. In medieval times and the early modern era, when state and church exercised their influence as rival syndicates, each exploited the public by expropriation, namely compulsory tithes and taxes as a coerced levy on a portion of income or upon various goods and kinds of exchanges, the hapless public rebounded between allegiances to these institutions as they sought protection from the vicissitudes of religious zealots and tyrannical kings. The break away from church and state through denominational dissent and political dissidence was a break away from monopoly privileges of either institution, a break towards the marketplace. What individuals sought was the protection of the secular marketplace, the free exchange of ideas and goods for individual profit, and the spontaneous order it allowed through the unregulated channels of production and distribution. The free market destroys monopoly in this way. It is to be remembered that neither church nor state ever stopped the exchange of ideas, even those inimical to state and church monopolies. What those coercive institutions stopped was the free exchange of ideas, that is, voluntary exchange through contract and private property without fear of reprisal from a coercive apparatus that outguns individuals in the marketplace. The dissenter's espousal of liberty of conscience was in its formulation a rejection of the principle that the mind and body were property of the state, to be disposed of at the behest of a powerful minority of pack mammals at the head of the state apparatus. Unfortunately, many societies never understood economics and the market phenomenon, something that was neither church nor state, and adopted the creeds of the welfare-warfare state even in its early monarchic guises, and so either attempted to prosecute laws in one denominational name or in the name of secularity and limited tolerance as long as those same institutions did not pursue ideals inimical to the majority opinion in state and church. Neither institution protected liberty in itself. Partisans of state and church intervention interpreted the phenomenon of monopoly not as state power, but as a concept signifying any institution that could not be despoiled by the state apparatus at the behest of a small ruling oligarchy because of a prevailing respect for property rights through rule of law. Monopoly began to be associated as the market. The state, the supposed protector of private property, became a means for any institution to expropriate private property in the name of social welfare. The upending of monopoly's denotation was ironic and the problem of coercion stands at the base of any political system. In previous ages, the problem's answer was the elimination of anything existing outside of the state and church by efficient regulation and outright force. 
Private institutions and private property were held as suspect by default. Sadly, the ironically named progressive and liberal trend back into the welfare warfare state is entrenched even in anti-theistic drives in America. We are actually drifting back into the doldrums of czarism. The force for evil at the root of this church-state debate is the apparatus for compulsion and coercion, and that apparatus is not the church these days. The religious market is flourishing in America, and it does not retain the power of coercion except where wedded to the state. The Westboro Baptist Church offends our senses by picketing funerals of individuals that it considers unholy and by parading about with signs declaring that God hates fags. But the church remains a nonviolent force of polarization. Nor yet does the church represent a current political agenda. It condemns American soldiers as murderers in the wide swath of its many condemnations. We may condemn the institution without asking for institutional condemnation from the state. The market of religion may be in somewhat of a participatory decline, but it is a market of books, television, and private institutions that are immensely profitable, whatever the attendance records reveal. The state has provoked its run-ins with the church since 1913 by increasing taxes and regulating nonprofits, and the IRS has reserved the power to audit religious institutions who promote political agendas unpopular with the ruling oligarchy. Skirting such regulations becomes much more difficult for denominations who oppose concepts like big government, violence, militarism, and aggression, and who take a stance against particular state programs, birth control, subsidized under Obamacare, compulsory secular education, gay marriage, the progressive enforcement of gay marriage in the private sector through incorporation, once again, and so on. The bigger the government and the more extensive its regulatory mechanisms grow, the more that there will be conflicts that develop between church and state. The destabilizing force in those conflicts and in the growth of government is the national debt, and the conflicts can be measured by that growth. Trends in new atheism call for corporate taxation of churches in the interest of fairness. But one cannot make the case, without damning the state's heavy hand in the same sentence, that religion's exemption from corporate taxation and property assessments gives it a leg up in the marketplace. If the free market is what promotes prosperity, and state taxation is what drags down everyone else, then why pursue progressive taxation at all? Why would we wish to drag everyone down? More to the point, why would we wish to drag anyone down? Most tax-the-church minds support the credo solely because they do not understand a single sentence of economics. They understand catchwords like greed and windfall profits, but they have no understanding of why a bank or an investment firm can be a positive thing, why windfall profits are good, and why greed is simply a smear thrown at anyone who does not share our own self-interest. Greed is excessively wanting more than one needs, but a man who produces goods that everyone voluntarily buys is not simply greedy, he is also a benefactor. But many people also do not understand why fractional reserve banks, the only banks that exist in the world by far, that are established and regulated by the state, are instruments of fraud, and why legislation that establishes the socialization of the financial sector is to blame for the boom-bust cycle. So they latch onto slogans, half-measures, and generally anti-establishment rhetoric. It is easy to imagine that all gains in an economy come at somebody else's expense. While this is true of political interventions, it is not true of market transactions. Annie Laurie Gaylor, the founder of the Wisconsin-based Freedom From Religion Foundation, has recently objected to the manner in which tax breaks are granted to nonprofits, 
since atheists of nonprofit organizations who are not ministers of the gospel cannot claim housing allowances under the current tax code. The only thing that differentiates an atheist like Gaylor from a religious official is that the atheist is not a minister of spiritual services. In 2011, Gaylor and Dan Barker, her husband, filed a lawsuit against the IRS protesting this interpretation of the tax code. Under the tax code, as Gaylor's team argued its case, religious institutions are given preference over non-religious institutions. The FFRF used this hypocritical standard in order to highlight a perceived injustice in taxation. The Seventh Circuit of Appeals in Wisconsin eventually ruled that the FFRF lacks sufficient standing to uphold its complaint against the IRS in November 2014. Gaylor, however, still maintains that parsonage exemption should be ruled unconstitutional. Sadly, the IRS was never Gaylor's target because her target was any grant of freedom from taxation. Gaylor, instead, struck out in the name of universal tax slavery. She never appears to have entertained the prospect that there is no such thing as equal taxation, and that equality before the IRS was a bewilderingly short-sighted goal to set out to achieve in the first place, where one speaks of ideals like freedom, liberty, and fairness in the codes of an institution that exists by means of predation and aggression. While the FFRF should be commended for challenging executive orders regarding tax-funded religious programs and Hine versus the Freedom from Religion Foundation, and furthermore, for challenging the constitutionality of churches' access to localized public services for their own profitability, namely traffic control at church entrances and private co-opting of public road-clearing services, the Foundation's views on taxation are incredibly perplexing to behold. Gaylor and the FFRF, between 2011 and 2014, were engaged in suing the IRS over nonprofit codes, particularly housing allowances or parsonage exemptions, since she and her fellows believe that untaxed church income is a violation of religious freedom if the non-religious atheist or agnostic cannot claim similar exemptions. Gaylor and Barker did not set out to use the lawsuit in order to claim that they should be given parsonage exemptions or housing allowances under the tax code in order to put themselves upon equal footing with the church. That would have been a noble goal, since it would have set a precedent for tax-free secular education. Instead, Gaylor and Barker, Barker is a former minister who once claimed those exemptions and received them, used freedom from taxation in order to bait the state into removing religious deductions from the IRS tax code. It was an argument along the lines of the following. If the state will not recognize our right to parsonage exemptions, then it should not recognize the right to any parsonage exemptions. Part of this statement is on the right track, but its conclusion is twisted. One can only hope that, in the future, organizations like the FFRF will argue that religious persuasion is a subjective state of mind, and cannot be defined by tax codes, and that a person's classification as a minister, holy person, or secularist with regard to income is the position that such a person plays in the marketplace, not in the ecclesiastical roles of St. Peter as interpreted by a government bureau, and thus justifies freedom from taxation. Taxation is aggression. It is a coerced levy, the same as a medieval tithe, and it is extracted by force and the threat of further expropriation and imprisonment. Since churches are granted tax exemptions in order to allot housing allowances, Gaylor's defense argues, the public is essentially subsidizing the existence of churches. This argument against tax exemption has become incredibly popular of late in atheistic circles, and it therefore requires a serious reply. Fortunately, 
it is a simple fallacy to demolish and requires observance of a single principle. More government involvement in religion equals more religious involvement in government because those who are taxed are also represented. Gaylor and her associates had hoped to bring religion under the tax umbrella and then continue to use the First Amendment to punish religious corporations into subservience by opposing any public, namely tax-funded, display of worship. She wished to cripple her rivals in the religious market in the same way that her foundation and its partisans are regulated by the state. While an atheistic libertarian could support the end equality before the law, the means here is strictly off-limits. The slavish redefinition of subsidy to match tax break or deduction is certainly a self-contradictory one, and it turns freedom on its head for a simple reason. It assumes that the state is the rightful owner of all American labor, persons, and property, and that all Americans are simply serfs working on the state's plantation. If this assumption is granted, then Gaylor and the FFRF have no sufficient cause to bring their suit before the court. Ironically, that is precisely what the court ruled for quite different reasons. Rulers of all ages have viewed the marketplace as an antagonist. Since freedom from the state is a limitation on the rulers themselves and various politicized contingents of society who have an eye on others' property. And in fascist Italy and Germany, the market was viewed as a drain on state resources, since markets, guarded by the principle of private property and individualism, would not fork over their profits unless the state issued force. In interventionist democracies, the many, namely the taxed dollars, believe that the few, namely the untaxed dollars, are to blame for inequality. We hear echoes of this sentiment when Senator Elizabeth Warren credits the success of commerce to public roads, or when Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama intimate that development of private property depends first upon public property, and that only public institutions, which can only exist by state expropriation of the private sector, are the only institutions that create jobs. How the state can own all resources is a far more troubling proposition to support since it is a proposition that negates liberty in its entirety. Furthermore, are these public officials speaking of public goods on the state or federal level? Public goods are not necessarily fungible assets. We need only glance back at the previous sections of this discussion to reinforce the absurdity of calling the government a creditor in any sense of the word. Because markets do not willingly comply with expropriation, they are the place where voluntary transactions occur. The RDB held suspect by those who espoused increased expropriation and state hegemony. This political-economic agenda, supplemented by its socialistic assumption, the abolition of private property and the legitimacy of universal government expropriation, either entirely or by an arbitrary fiat ratio, is symptomatic of a decline in some atheist intellection. Is this not the same assumption? collective ownership under God, either entirely or by a fiat ratio, that freethinkers oppose when opposing theocratic government? Is it not also the same assumption at odds with the laissez-faire disestablishment of churches in America? A subsidy is a transfer of money from Smith to Jones. When the government grants a subsidy to a green energy firm, it is taking money from Citizen Smith and giving it directly to Corporation Jones. Smith loses and Jones gains. When the government bails out GMC or failing banks, this is subsidization. The government guarantees production of automobiles beyond actual market demand or beyond the demand that the existing corporate structure can meet without internal reform, by lowering prices and executing layoffs to meet broader demand, or, more to the point, 
renegotiating union contracts and retirement benefits. A tax break or a tax deduction signifies untaxed income, or a small grant of freedom from aggression, nothing more. When the government grants Smith a tax credit in 2007 for the purchase of a new home, the government does not redistribute his income because it takes a hands-off policy on that money, provided Smith spends it on a government-approved commodity. Jones does not receive Smith's money, and Smith has some limited ability to invest at his discretion. This is especially a boon to Smith if Smith had already intended to buy a new home, regardless of the credit. Jones does not even figure into this equation. And if the government gives Smith a tax deduction, it does not place any restriction on that money, provided that it meets with some other tax-deductible regulation, such as a charitable contribution. In an exemption, the state agrees not to aggress against Smith's finances for some other reason clearly outlined in the tax code. Jones gains nothing by a wealth transfer because of Smith's deductions, credits, and exemptions, but he also loses nothing. Unless, of course, Smith's credits, exemptions, and deductions exceed his income and result in a transfer from Jones to Smith. If Smith gives money to a charity and the state does not tax him for the use of that income, Jones certainly loses nothing, especially if Jones is down on his luck and is a recipient of the charitable contribution. Taxes upon charity, a down-and-out Jones sees, would only discourage charitable contributions by Smith or at least diminish the size of the contribution netted by Jones. The same could not be said of the state welfare programs, since Smith does lose what the state takes from him in order to give to Jones. This exchange is not an exchange, and it is not paid. Rather, it is taken by force. This is especially bad for Smith if he has just been demoted, is struggling to pay his debts, and his wife has just surprised him with an unplanned pregnancy. The chaos that proceeds by confusing subsidies with exemptions and deductions, achieved either by doublethink or by shoddy definitions, becomes immediately apparent when we consider the following scenario. Annie Laurie Gaylor argues that when the state grants churches the freedom to offer a $20,000 housing allowance, tax-deductible, to ministers, that this is a subsidy. It is a transfer of money from Gaylor to the minister, or the church. The transfer at stake here is apparent in the fact that because Gaylor pays taxes, and the minister's $20,000 allowance is not taxed income, namely, it is loot, not stuffed into the state's pockets, then Gaylor's share of the tax burden is higher than it otherwise might be in order to shoulder the cost of the minister's allowance or the church's untaxed income. Remember, the minister's income is potential loot, and certainly not income. Gaylor is sacked a little more efficiently by the state than the church and minister are. What should happen, she argues, is that the state should tax the church for housing allowances in order to even out the tax burden so that churches pay their fair share and so that the loot finds its rightful home in the state apparatus to be spent at a bureaucrat's discretion and presumably to fund the Bush-Obama faith-based initiative program. Hence, we see the fascist undertones of the argument laid bare. The state is the rightful owner of that property and the taxpayer is held accountable for the failure of markets to leap wholeheartedly into outright serfdom. Gaylor, no doubt, does not see herself as a crony socialist, but by recommending state aggression against her competitors, she is seeking to get a leg up in the market by means of government intervention. She should have simply set her organization up against the 16th Amendment and channeled her energies there. The FFRF does not see that government spending, the invisible try in the trilateral intervention presented above as a mere duality, 
is itself already antithetical to the FFRF's overarching goal in Hein versus the Freedom from Religion Foundation. And this is supposed to be the triumph of free thought codified into a principle? Gaylor's argument is tantamount to the belief that if the state's agents begin smashing windows on select neighborhood streets, leaving others unmolested because of the pretty stained glass windows, that in the interest of fairness, those agents ought to extend their vandalism to every neighborhood street. To this, the reasonable atheist has a single reply. Why not simply fight the window smashers? The real absurdity becomes more apparent when we increase the deduction. In nominal terms, since estimated untaxed income of the American Catholic churches is well beyond $170 billion, Gaylor's proportional share of taxes are increased by her fair share in that $170 billion. This is clearly not true. How could Gaylor's tax burden increase by more than $170 billion without an increase in government spending and future borrowing against those taxes with a downward pressure on interest rates by the central bank's borrowed money price controls? And how could government spending increase by $170 billion without the state first taking the church's money? Must not the government first have the income in order to spend it? And here we ignore the existence of the Federal Reserve's open market operations and the fact that loot is not income. And if the state does not have that income because it only has loot, then how can it justify spending its imaginary income? To parse the argument in its theological context, how can God create the universe out of nothing? Must there not be something out of which to create something else? Doesn't God need capital accumulation in order to produce? And if this capital does exist, then who arranged it for production? Another God? Then how did God obtain it? Did he trade for it, or did he seize it by force? Or did he obtain it by means of a pre-existing yet unseen human actor who profits by posing as a mouthpiece for God? The state did not engage in capital accumulation because the state only exists by means of expropriation, the production of debt. Never mind government spending, central banks, and the typical socialistic justifications of the state's seen programs. The real problem, as Gaylor sees it, is that churches are not paying their fair share. But under the proportional argument behind Gaylor's suit, which does not rely as much upon strictly stated numerical values as it does upon the distribution of tax burdens, it would follow that if church profits were not taxed at all, assigning them a neutral zero in the ratio, that her taxes are increased by infinity. Why infinity? Because the state rightly owns her entire income, as well as that of the nation, past, present, and future. If the state has not seized all church income, as well as all of Gaylor's income, then this is the result of the state's restraint. But how can the state exercise greater restraint by seizing more private property and increasing tax burdens by blowing up government programs? The answer is that the original problem of government spending does not even figure into Gaylor's argument because of a certain level of economic ignorance or self-interested partisanship. Her suit does not progress beyond the level of stage one thinking. It is a piece of political hackwork that displays a kind of intellectual bankruptcy and internal inconsistency. Even were she not a democratic socialist by self-definition, her intellectual trajectory is running towards all-out communism. If Gaylor wished to pinpoint the problem, she could easily do so. The problem is taxation itself, and this is a problem of government aggression.
Thank you for listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Please make sure to leave us a great review on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, and check in from time to time to look for updates. Beginning in the year 2017, www.culture-anarchy.com will be podcasting issues of The Dial, our literary magazine, for audio consumption at the end of each month. Please send us poems and short essays for review to see your work in our electronic publication and to hear it promulgated throughout the world. We do address cultural, political, and social issues with humor, subversiveness, and levity as they pop up, and we will generally feature content with specific thematic structure. As we conclude our eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, stay tuned for our new series, which attacks the root of cultural Marxism in the Collegiate Humanities, a rationalist critique of deconstruction, demystifying post-structuralism, and Derrida's science of the non. Visit us at www.culture-anarchy.com to view our submission guidelines. There is no such thing as fair taxation. Expropriation will always fall unequally upon the taxpayers, since taxpayers find themselves in different financial straits even within tax brackets. Namely, some have greater personal debts or fewer debts than others, achieved at varying interest levels based on credit scores. A tax is always a tax upon something. Private wealth. But private wealth is not measured in dollars. It is measured in the goods and services that those dollars equip someone to procure. Whoever makes her living by dealing in the particular something being taxed will feel the hurt in the greatest degree. The church, or more particularly, its ministers, does not feel as much hurt as the rest of the world because it is not sacked as well by the IRS. But what kind of solution is it to propose the efficient sacking of everyone by the domestic imperial agenda of the democratic state? Even for the atheist, the god in the tax machine is no more a god worthy of allegiance than, well, god. A dollar collected in tax revenues is not identical to a dollar given voluntarily to a church. One is a payment issued out of a fear of government reprisal, which one would very likely not pay, at least in that amount, if one were not under the threat of violence. Hence, the state gains and the taxpayer loses. A dollar given to the church is a voluntary payment issued out of a fear of celestial reprisal, a way to contribute private wealth, Gaylor's loot, to a cause the taxpayer champions rather than allow it to be looted for some nefarious scheme, or else it is given out of a good-natured and commendable concern for the human condition. Some atheists may not see the difference right away, since they tend to mistake religious adherence with compulsion because of religious indoctrination, especially in childhood education. The difference is that the treasury agents of the afterlife do not show up my door with an ecclesiastical gun, garnish my wages, or seize my property if I do not pay the tithe. I am under no compulsion to paper the roads of heaven with my fiat currency. TaxTheChurches.org, a secular status vehicle promoting the taxation of churches, also appeals to atheists on this ridiculous front. 
You, more than anyone else, are subject to a uniquely perverted form of taxation without representation, when your taxes are higher to make up for religious institutions who pay nothing. Here we see the fascist undertones of the argument laid bare. Markets are a monopoly because of the rule of law and the respect for property rights. If churches are not taxed, and therefore do not have representation, hence the separation of church and state, then how does the taxpayer suffer from a lack of representation? Clearly, he suffers from too much representation because his taxes are so high, and he ought to become aware that what he desires is no taxation with or without representation. What he desires is the separation of state and economy. Clearly, the church gains nothing by what I do not personally give it, in money or belief. How does the atheist feel the pinch of religious tyranny in the state of affairs? His taxes are so high because the welfare warfare state has sacked a quarter of his income and inflation has eroded much of what was left in his savings. And furthermore, his ability to invest in profitable enterprises has been thwarted by the boom-bust cycle because of the manipulation of interest rates by a central bank. Whatever the case is, there is a dangerous principle at stake here in the atheist quest to fully incorporate the 16th Amendment through the 14th Amendment. More government involvement in religion means more religious involvement in government. The issue of Washington lobbying influences some to provide justifications for the regulation of the politically active religious bodies. If nonprofits like religious bodies enjoy tax-exempt status, yet seek to gain legislation in favor of their religious ideals, then it seems, say some, that they ought to forfeit their nonprofit tax-exempt status to fall under the corporate tax bracket. And indeed, in 1946, the Federal Regulation of Lobbying Act sought to do just that. Nevertheless, the law also allowed the United States House Select Committee on Lobbying Activities to pursue any lobbying firms dedicated to positions unpopular with the administration. In 1941, newspaperman Edward A. Roomley formed the Committee for Constitutional Government in order to protest FDR's decision to pack the Supreme Court with additional judges favorable to his New Deal reforms so as to effectively restructure the judicial branch to make it more subservient to the executive power. Roomley mailed out copies of the Constitution to forward his message. By 1950, the Buchanan-led House Select Committee on Lobbying Activities pursued Roomley's nonprofit for distributing books critical of public policies, demanding a list of recipients for those books because Roomley's activities may have, and the Buchanan Committee's contorted reasoning, constituted a means of tax evasion. Roomley refused to hand that list over, citing the First Amendment. He was convicted and then jailed, but later he was acquitted of the charges. Roomley estimated that his total cost, calculated in the cost of litigation and canceled book orders from buyers who were frightened by the tax evasion threat with which he was charged, and also his temporary detention and original conviction, amounted to $150,000. As Frank Chodorov pointed out, the Buchanan Committee achieved its purpose of reducing the revenues of a dissident organization on its way towards bribing Americans into abandoning their right of protest. Similar problems arose in 2013 when it was revealed that the IRS had been targeting dissident Tea Party activists and later the Occupy Wall Street organizations who opposed public policy on constitutional grounds. IRS Director Lois Lerner and her army of discriminators were acquitted of wrongdoing since in the words of the Department of Justice's brief on the issue, poor management is not a crime. Nevertheless, what the Department of Justice did not sufficiently acknowledge is that the damage had already been done to the parties involved. The regulation of nonprofits and government lobbying has its problems. 
Namely, it opens up the possibility that the state will select for study dissidents who distribute anti-collectivist and pro-limited government literature. Indeed, any religious organization that opposes government taxation of churches is thus subject to regulation because of its nonprofit status, and thus entangles the state and church once again. And looking further down the road, if the tax the church movement leads to increased church agitation and government, as those taxed seek their share of representation, then any secularist nonprofit that objects to this trend now finds itself agitating on a political subject that could, if the church agitation is well funded and supported, lead to the denial of nonprofit status for a secular organization. If the state has not pursued this arrangement to its conclusion, then it is because the state has decided not to universalize its regulations. The proper reply is not to request universal regulation, but instead to argue for no regulation, since state regulations cannot be applied constitutionally with any measure of equality or fairness. After all, equality and fairness are not the objectives of taxation, and as concepts happen to be incompatible with the state's favored means of paying social debts accrued by the ruling oligarchy. If Americans have the right to demand that everyone be plundered equally, a bizarre interpretation of the 14th Amendment through the 16th Amendment, then the state will engage in this plunder if enough people vote for it. This will not, however, magically confer upon the state a means to achieving equality and fairness, since these concepts cannot be achieved without eliminating the concept of liberty wherever it odds with private property, which is everywhere except equality in the administration of laws regarding justly obtained private property. The state attracts those who are preeminently suited to profitless investments, poor management, and outright expropriation, loot, and they will grow the state to increase its monetary base at any opportunity. But the reverse swing of the door is dangerous for secular statists. If the state taxes the billions of dollars in church revenues like other corporations, then the church has the right to demand the plunder of American corporations, including secular nonprofits, in equal measure, though perhaps not in degree. One would not be far from government bailouts in the name of spiritual welfare or direct subsidization of churches, and taxing churches will increase the power of church lobbies, religious involvement in government affairs, and the destruction of domestic market alternatives to religion. The church's considerable influence will buy a lot of friends, including those most sympathetic to theocratic aims. The small percentage of atheists in the country will feel the burden of representation once again, and they will purchase their 2% representation at a greater loss than they believe. They may even see a rise in representation as lukewarm theists become dissatisfied with the new trend, but the trend is now enshrined and institutionalized and cannot be easily overturned by a minority. Statism will cripple rival atheist think tanks, who are in the minority by a wide margin, and dismantle the separation of church and state on the way to bureaucratic management and eventual increases in violence as denominations and secular statists vie for control of the apparatus of coercion and compulsion. Enough Americans will oppose a singular monopoly, but a bureaucratic monopoly is not difficult to imagine. Eroding the federal policy of laissez-faire erodes the very vehicle of religious freedom as it has existed in America to date. The difficult road ahead lies in the fact that the post-Civil War system of federal centralization and incorporation has broken down the tension between powerless states and an ever more powerful federal government. Atheists need laissez-faire, and they need it today. And this is why many atheists find their rightful place in a libertarian movement. Secularists, because they often side with the state and view it as a counter-religious institution, too often buy into a statist agenda in order to ward off religious intrusion in the public sector. 
If something isn't religion, then it is secular by definition. And since the state is secular because it is not religion, then the state is the secularist protector. Because secular law is the means by which the Establishment Clause is enforced, statists would argue, secular law and the public sector are the mascots of religious freedom, including freedom from religion. But I hope that the preceding argument is strong enough to urge secular statists to re-examine their premises, to recognize the importance of laissez-faire in the history of America's religious market, which includes anti-clericalism, agnosticism, atheism, and anti-theism, and to take an earnest look at the history of religion. The marketplace is not the church, nor yet the state, and the church is only a macro variable for all of the competing religious firms in the market, and atheism, agnosticism, and free thought compete with the church in that realm. The church is no more a thing than the state. When we talk of these institutions, diverse and varied as they are, we discuss their role in the marketplace. The church supplies spiritual services. The state expropriates the marketplace by force. And in a democratic republic or constitutional system, namely a monopoly collective bargaining contract, it represents majority opinion with a nominal attachment to private property rights. Atheism will compete more effectively with the church if we can reduce the power of the state and its expropriations. We can have no doubt, theoretically or historically, that market competition and religion is a blessing, whether divinely conferred or not. Whenever religion manages to co-opt the state, in part or in whole, religious violence tends to reach extraordinary heights because compulsion in ethereal and ultimate ends brooks no compromise. Each intrusion into the public sector on religion's part, achieved by lobbying and political influence, threatens the property and privacy of secularists themselves as long as they take refuge in status creeds, particularly those that encourage the regulation of private enterprise and wield progressive taxation like a weapon. Anti-clericalism, by that same measure, is just as odious when allied to the state because it plays an equally antagonistic role. As the state spreads its roots through the economy by increasing its expropriations, church influence in the state and the market also spreads, as does reactionary anti-clericalism. Also, where one might see a decline in participatory rates in the market, one may see participatory rates in politics grow by a similar measure. But it is a growth that is inimical to secularity if the state's expropriations are not attacked at every turn. Hence, when religious debaters confront their atheist opponents with the history of violent and fanatical anti-clericalism in Stalinist Russia in order to attack secular society, the conflation of Stalinist communism with atheism misses the point, as does the conflation of Catholic socialism with feudal tyranny in medieval times. Socialism is tyranny, regardless of its oligarchic modifier, and state-sponsored thought control is anathema to a free society. Socialism, be it democratic, limited, mixed, or purely theoretical, is anti-economic illogic codified into an ethical system. Every totalitarian has, at some point, utilized religious means to obtain her ends. No totalitarian has, by contrast, ever espoused the free market and individual sovereignty. American conservatives since the early 20th century have often pimped the lingo of the free market, but almost nobody charged with keeping the market free by keeping the government's hands out of the economy has actually repealed state power and slashed existing departments in favor of laissez-faire. The market, indeed, grew in spite of the chains cast about it. But it grew in fits and starts, with regular booms and busts, 
and has never had the chance to escape the socialist regressives who saddle it with waste and fraud in the name of tempering its cultural and material excesses. In pitting the state against the church to achieve secular goals, the new atheists make a grievous error. There was always an alternative, the marketplace, and it is in this unregulated market of religion that freedom from political influence flourishes. The market does not provide a microphone in the same way that a politician's rostrum does, but the market is the guarantor of religious liberty. As such, foundations like those of Gaylor should run towards tax exemptions and seize upon all grants of liberty for any reason whatsoever. Taxation is an attack upon an organization's place within the market, regardless of its teaching. Freedom from taxation is freedom from restriction in the marketplace. Collective immiseration through state expropriation is not a noble principle to seize upon if liberty is one's goal. It is a slavish argument that actually romanticizes universal serfdom. Nobody has ever denied that all serfs are equal, but why would anyone promote the equality of slavery or the equality of loot as a goal? How is universal subservience freedom without a prior hypostatization of democracy itself? Assuming that the state could, in practice, actually diminish the role of organized religion by means of force or coercion, it is impossible to achieve that goal in the name of public safety, rationality, property rights, prosperity, or freedom. The state becomes the arbiter of religious policy, an illiberal principle of monopoly privilege and arbitrary rule. Supporters of the FFRF will object that the argument above is anti-democratic, and in this I would wholeheartedly concur and so far as democracy is defined as representational. The question is whether democracy is a protector of liberty. As I have already shown, market anarchy, democracy without representation, can and did protect religious freedom. It is representation itself that defies liberty. Literally, the re, i.e. second, presentation of a market demand in the political sphere, that exists by means of loot in order to support a supply over and above the demand already stipulated in the marketplace represented in direct voluntary payment. Political representation is itself the problem with democracy. When democracy steps over the strict limits on state power, relegating it to governmental affairs that protect self-ownership and rights to justly obtain property. Stalinist Russia took anti-clericalism to the extreme torturing Russian Orthodox believers in order to discourage religious adherence. And in the wake of the communist state, Russian Orthodoxy has regained its foothold in society, galvanized now by its erstwhile martyrs. As Pinker notes of godless communism, the apotheosis of the state, godless it certainly was, but the repudiation of one illiberal ideology does not automatically grant immunity from others. Marxism violently rejected the humanism and liberalism of the Enlightenment, which placed the flourishing of individuals as the ultimate goal of political systems. A halfway measure, halfway between secular socialism and free markets, simply will not suffice if we are speaking of freedom. Who will oversee the transition, and how will it be funded? If the state is involved, it will be achieved by expropriation and compulsion, and thus thwart the goal of liberty. The desperation that new atheism expresses in the face of religious popularity and activism in American politics stems from the fact that the secularists have no moral or political right to intervene in the religious market. The religious market, on the other hand, is not barred from entry into the state, since individuals staff state cabinets and administrations. Churches do not, and individuals are free to attend church and to hold religious ideas, 
and nobody is free to abstain from funding public schools that are partially overseen by those same individuals. Churches may be in decline even when theism is not, but the democratic state has continued to grow vastly in size and force since the Wilson administration. Atheists are limited on one important front. We have not spread our roots deeply enough through the fertile soils in the marketplace because of the public barriers our forefathers and foremothers have erected in compulsory education, market regulation, and wealth redistribution. Atheism is an outcrop of education and philosophy. Sadly, too many atheists are following in Gaylor's steps and are rushing headlong into the obliteration of the liberty of conscience, blind to the mishaps that lie ahead. Either that, or they actually support the totalitarian endpoint in their own arguments for some ulterior motive, say the secular humanist drive for the establishment of centrally planned economies and actual coercion to prevent the spread of religious opinions. Some atheists will object that something must be done, since the democratic state is growing and it is easier to achieve a change in public policy by seizing the reins. They must remember, however, that they are in the minority, and that the same argument stands behind every justification for the abuse of power in human history. Majority rule is the justification of democracy, not private property. Majority rule may violate private property to enrich some at the cost of others. Democracy is not, in itself, a moral principle. In fact, though American political philosophers justify the American system as moral because it is the system that benefits the majority opinion in the state apparatus, What the skeptic ought to note is that nowhere has anyone ever actually defended with success the principle that a majority opinion is itself just. Democracy is not morality, nor is it an extension of ethics. It is bullying. It is predatory. It is generally destructive. It cannot achieve the harmony of long-run interests unless tempered by laissez-faire, and laissez-faire is what undercuts representative democracy by showing us how clunky, bureaucratic, and wasteful the democratic establishment is. There are no benign dictators. that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. Thank you for tuning in to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Subscribe, leave us a great review, and share this podcast with your friends so that we can continue to bring you the best in audio content.